So we're looking today at um, John chapter 5. Um, we've started a series called The Seven Signs of Jesus. We started about two Sundays ago, and that is going to culminate with Easter Sunday. Seven signs that Jesus performs in the Gospel of John, and as we work our way through each of them, the seventh sign, which is the resurrection of Lazarus, um, I think is a timely message for Easter Sunday. Um, it's all timed like that. Today we find ourselves at sign three. Sign three, um, and I'll call it the healing waters. So if you look with me at John chapter 5, verse 1 to 18, um, you, can f- you can look on the screen. Thank you so much, Jenny. You can look on the screen or in your bulletin or in your Bible. John 5. After these things, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew, Bethesda, having five porticos. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered, waiting for the moving of the waters. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then first, after the stirring up of the water, stepped in, was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. A man was there who had been ill for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there, knew that he had already been a long time in that condition. And he said to him, Do you wish to get well? And the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your pallet and walk. Immediately the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. Now it was the Sabbath on that day. So the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, It is the Sabbath and it is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. But he answered them, He who made me well was the one who said to me, Pick up your pallet and walk. And they asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Pick up your pallet and walk? But the man who was healed did not know who it was, For Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But he answered them, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. And so what we have here is another miracle, another sign of Jesus. He comes to this pool where allegedly people would crawl into it whenever the water stirred, and then when they would come out, they'd be miraculously healed. Jesus sees a man there who had been ill 38 years. What is his condition exactly? It just says he was ill. So 38 years, Jesus recognizes, asks him if he wants to get well, and he heals this person, and that leads to this big controversy that's summed up right there in verse 18. When you look at verse 18, that's pretty much the rub. He was breaking the Sabbath. He was calling God his Father. And last, he made himself equal with God. 
three things that in the Jewish mind were completely um, abominable. And those are the three things that I want to focus on because I think as much as the sign is important, many times um, uh, we'll say, you know, I think it's a sign. But the true purpose of a sign is not just to dazzle us, but it's to teach us something about who God is and to point to himself, I think. And so there's three things that this sign does in raising a controversy, and these are the three headings in your notes. If you look in the three hole punch paper in your bulletin, the three issues that it raises is first, redefining Jesus. Who am I? A sign from God should always cause us to look at God and say, whoa, wait, who, who, are, who are you? What does this tell me about who you are? Secondly, the second heading is redefining God. Who is God? And the third heading is redefining rest. What is this thing called Sabbath, which is so scandalous to them? They just saw a person miraculously healed, but for them, the deal breaker was this Sabbath issue. So those are the three headings that we're going to talk along this morning. Three things. First, Jesus, God, and then last, rest. So we'll begin with that, we'll begin with that first heading, redefining Jesus. There's a miracle, there's a sign. What does it say about Jesus? What does it say about who Jesus is? So look with me at verse 6. Jesus sees this man lying there, and it says that he knew. He knew that he had already been a long time in that condition. And then he asks him the question, do you wish to be well? That sentence is an interesting sentence that I just meditated a little bit on myself yesterday. Think about it. Just even for yourself, do you wish to be well? We live in a culture of narcissism. Lots of times it's so much easier to say, well, she's the one that needs to get better. Or my boss is the one who needs to get well. He's sick. Or, you know, my spouse or my neighbor. They're the ones, but what about us? Now here are the words that Jesus speaks to me at this moment do you wish to get well? Do you wish to get healthy? I'm fine. I have no problems. I've got it together. Again, he or she is the one that needs help. But no, he asks each and every one of us personally with insight, do you wish to get better? So that's what he asks this person, and I can't help but to feel that there's more to that question. There's more than just do you want to get, you know, do you want to be able to walk or do you want to, if you want to, you know, get your, your diseases removed. I think there's more. There's more even to the heart of that question. He's talking to the heart of this man. Do you wish to get well? So in asking that question, I think it's um, a loaded question. Lots of times, you know, even last Sunday, we talked about Jesus having a conversation with the royal official. The royal official says, heal my son. And Jesus says something outlandish, like, you people, unless you see signs and wonders, you won't believe. He's always saying something that on the surface, it sounds a little abrupt. There's some, there's, there's, there's some teachable moment there. So let's dig into this teachable moment. Do you wish to get well? Why is Jesus asking this guy in particular is my question. It says there's a multitude of people there. If he's God, why not just heal everybody in order to prove a statement? But of all these people, why him? Why this 
man in particular? Why does he ask him, do you wish to get well? What is his intent? What is his motive? Was he driven by this Santa Claus kind of sentiment? I was walking down the street. I saw you there with your sign that said, hungry, want something to eat. I was moved to tears, and I just decided to give you $100. Was he moved by this strong sense of charity? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. The more I've read this passage, the more I get the sense that this might have been the guy that you, moved by charity, pulled over, rolled down your window, gave him $100, and then you watched him walk over to the liquor store and go and have a huge alcohol binge. This man is an interesting study in contrasts. Because what does he do? after he gets healed, but go and basically sell out Jesus. He pulls a Judas on him. So it's an interesting response. It's a contrast with another man. I, I write this in the notes, John chapter 9. There's another man who's blind. Jesus heals him. And what does this man do in John 9? He goes into this almost court of law in front of the Pharisees and he defends Jesus. And in the end, he believes but with this dude, no indication, no indication that he believes. No indication that there's a life turnaround. In fact, when he finds out who exactly Jesus is, he sells him out to the authorities. The point that I'm making is, I don't know if this guy is worth Jesus' charity. That's the assessment that I think John is making, the author. The more we study this passage, it almost appears that John is painting this guy in a, not, not in a pleasant light. And I think that makes sense of that verse 14 when Jesus says, don't sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. I'd hate to unpack that verse for a skeptic in our in our congregation this morning because it's difficult. Wait, wait, are you saying, are you saying that this man is sick because he sinned? It's a very unpopular idea. You're saying that he is like this in this physical condition because he sinned. I actually don't think that that's what Jesus is saying. Because if you look, again, I'm going to call your attention to John 9. I think there are some almost deliberate contrasts there. In John chapter 9, verse 1 to 3, listen to this. Just listen to this. Jesus passed by. He saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned so that this man is born blind? Did he sin or did his parents sin? And Jesus answered, neither. Neither. So I don't think necessarily that Jesus is saying here to this guy who, who's lame or whatever. I don't think he's saying to him, you're like this because you're such a bad person. You're, you're a sinner. You're a sinner, therefore, you're in this condition. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. I think what he's saying is don't sin anymore don't do the next thing that I think you're going to do. That's what I think is behind that statement in verse 14. 
when he says, do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you, I think Jesus knew more, more than this man's physical condition. It says he knew, he knew that he had been sick for 38 years. Oh, I knew, I think he knew a lot more about this guy. He looked right into his heart and he knew that this person would not exactly stand up to defend Jesus. So in verse 14, I think the heart of what he's saying is, don't do what I think you're going to do. Don't go forth from here. Don't sin anymore. Don't go forward in unbelief anymore. But without skipping a beat, what do you see in verse 15? Without skipping a beat, it says, the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. No defense, no conversion, no belief, no thank you. No thank you for doing this for me. Instead, go and tell the authorities. It's incredibly ungrateful. Um, and it's, um, yeah, it is what it is. Uh, I believe that all of us here, we're here with a grateful response this morning. But let's get back to that original question. Why this man? Why this man? It, it appears this man, this man is not a very grateful person. So why did Jesus choose this guy? If he knew, at least I think he knew, he knew that this man would be ungrateful towards him. Why? Still then, why him? Was it charity? I don't think so. Maybe it was to make a statement. I think Jesus chose this man in particular because he knew that this was going to raise an issue about who he is, who he, who he was. It was something that was going to raise a big stink, a big controversy. And that's exactly what happens. It's almost as if Jesus comes into Jerusalem, he recognizes that something's about to go down, and he says, I'm going to use this opportunity to reveal myself. I'm going to use this opportunity to, um, to come out, so to speak. In other words, Jesus used this opportunity to show the people that he was, as it says in verse 18, equal with God. Use the healing incident to crack open the door for a controversy, leading to the question, wait, 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 hang on. Who in the world are you? How, what, your, your father? That's bogus. You're equal with God. And so that leads to the second heading, redefining God. The first heading, Jesus redefines himself. He doesn't just give us signs. And I can go into stories, and I will, but signs in our lives where Jesus, you know, you have some kind of a sign from God. But that's never just for the sign itself, always to reveal something about himself. He redefines himself. Now, by making himself equal with God, Jesus, God, equal, he redefines God. He redefines God. And that is our second heading. That's where I want to hone in on a little bit. Who is God? What is this notion of God? What are we dealing with here? A long time ago, there was once a man who woke up in the middle of the night in a cold sweat. 
he was breathing heavy and he was having a panic attack. And in the midst of his panic attack, he got up, he lit a lamp back in the day, lit a lamp, and he began searching the house and ranting like a lunatic, saying, where, where is God? Where is God? Where is God? He grabs this guy, runs out into the streets, into the taverns. Where is God? Where is God? He's in a pub. Where is God? And all the patrons, they're looking at him. This guy's got whacked out. They're laughing. Where is God? What, what did he take a trip? Did he, did he run away? Is he dead? And at, that wor- at those words, at that moment, he seized upon one man and he grabs him. When he says, is God dead? He says, where is God? I will tell you where God is. We killed him. We killed God. You and I, we are all his killers. But how have we done this? How could we swallow up the sea? Who gave us the sponge to wipe away the horizon? What will we do as the earth is set loose from its axis, from its sun? In other words, what he's saying here is the notion and the idea of God is completely removed if you recognize these words does anybody recognize these words they're from a little they're from a book called the madman written by a philosopher named nietzsche and if that name rings a bell he was the one that that famous phrase god is dead that's where it comes from now let me explain a little bit because this this is this is important when Nietzsche says God is dead, he's not necessarily saying we killed God. He's not necessarily saying, you know, um, you know somebody took a lightning bolt and threw it at the heart of Zeus or whatever. What he's, what he's saying, what he means by saying that God is dead is that we live in an age where everything is provable by science, where the need for God is completely um, gone. He's not so much saying we killed God as much as he's saying we don't need God anymore. The Bible has already been disproved by Dan Brown in the Da Vinci Code. Everything that we need to know about the mysteries of the universe are now proved by science. There is no need for God. So we're talking philosophy here. I'm sorry for the philosophy lesson, but what he's essentially saying is this. He's redefining who God is. He's redefined God completely. He's taken the notion of the other world, the universal, metaphysics, and he's saying, no need for it anymore. Nietzsche basically said, God is dead. There is no imaginary universe. There is no metaphysics. There's no, no, need, no need for it. I bring that up because what Nietzsche does is not that different from what Jesus does. Nietzsche redefines God. So does Jesus. Nietzsche redefines God and says, we don't need God. We don't need all that metaphysics. We don't need universals. We don't need the transcendent notion of God. What Jesus does is redefine God, and he takes all that stuff, all these ideas of the universal, of the transcendent God, and you know what he does? He takes that and calls it daddy. Both of those are preposterous. To say that God is dead, in many ways, Nietzsche was right. 
He wasn't saying God is dead as much as he was just calling it like he saw it. It was nothing very original. For him to say God is dead was already a reflection of the times. We don't need God. We have automobiles and airplanes and, and the Da Vinci Code. But what Jesus said was truly revolutionary because he looked at the universal and he said, Father, Father, that is truly revolutionary. By calling God, Dad, Daddy, Appa, Abba, Papa, is not only what he does, it's what all of us now can do. That which is transcendent becomes so familiar. Now for some of you, and that's the fill in the blank, by the way. Um, fill in the blank is... What is the fill in the blank? just want to make sure I word this right. Right, the Christian name for God. The Christian name for God is Dad, Father, Daddy, Papa. Maybe some of you are going to say, that, that doesn't sit comfortably with me because Daddy was um, not very perfect. For the Jews, I mean, on a philosophical level, it was bad enough as it is, but maybe for some of them they said, Abba, I remember my Abba. How dare you say that, my, that God is like my father? But just like we sang this morning, we sang about a good father, that there is a paradigm, that there is a perfect, that there is not just a father. He's not just a father, but he's also God. Therefore, there is perfection. He is the perfect father. Is there, such a, is there even such a thing? The Father who is perfect enough to give you not everything that you want. Listen to this. The Father who is perfect enough not to give you everything that you want, but everything that you need. The Father that is loving enough to dote on you and to say, I love you because I love you because I love you. But at the same time to say, but you need to get your act together. The Father that is, that is kind enough to lavish upon you but not exactly everything that we want, which is not always good for us, but to also give us what we need, to give us more often than not exactly what we need. So he's not like the imperfect father. He is the father in perfection. And we, you and I, get to call ourselves sons and daughters. Now this, this is revolutionary. Once Jesus redefined God in this moment and said, God is a father, God is my father, he became the first of many sons, which means all of us here get to call him dad. See, there was a, a story, a true story about a man um, who um, led a very successful, very fulfilled life. But he talks about when he was a child, he never knew his dad. He was what you call an illegitimate child. And he grew up in a small town small southern town and this this uh this 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 man at that time a boy hated going out of his house because whenever he stepped foot outside of his house everybody stared at him in the small town because in a small town everybody knows everybody right so it's like this little boy is wearing a scarlet letter on his chest because every time he goes out everybody's like i wonder who his dad is i wonder who his father is illegitimate child born of a single mother, nobody knows. 
Nobody knows who his father is. So he hated going to school because whenever he went to school, he'd get picked on. There was a name that the other kids would call him because he had no dad. The worst was going to church. He hated the judgmentalism. One day, a new pastor came to the church, and a new pastor began to know his flock, began to know his town. And uh, this young boy, he used to slip out of church. He used to slip out of church um, just before the benediction so that nobody would catch him and he would just disappear. He would just, you wouldn't see him. One day, the pastor pronounced the benediction and he finished really quick. And he caught that boy. And on the way out, the little boy, as he was running out, little illegitimate son, he feels a heavy hand on his shoulder. And that hand stops right there, and he says, young man, young man, let me get this right. Who are you, son? Who are you? And the little boy says, oh, great, here it comes, and it's coming from the pastor. This is why, this is why I'm not a Christian, he says, right? Who are you, son? Whose boy are you? Oh, wait a second. I know who you are. And the boy looks up fearing the worst, and the pastor says, I see the family resemblance. You're a son of God. You're a child of the Father in heaven. It was those words that changed his life. It was those words that completely set him up for good. Can I say this? I know who you are. I see the family resemblance in every single one of you. You are a daughter and a son of God. Don't let anybody ever take that away from you. Your father is a good father. That's who you are. And that will never change you can disown your father. Your father can disown you. But with a father in heaven, never. There's no line you can cross. There's no argument too bad. There's no fallout that's too fallen out. There's no broken relationship where God will ever disown you and you can ever stop being a son. Just as Jesus is the son and the father is the father into eternity you're part of that equation you will be a son and you will be a daughter and that is the greatest thing the greatest truth i can tell you this morning that won't change there are no fatherless children here today believe it believe it amen so jesus does all these things, just by healing this person. That's the funny thing. You thought we were going to talk about a miracle today, right? I thought so too. I got into this passage and I thought we were going to get into, you know, these, these deep things about how you dip your toe in the water and you come out cleansed and healed and how your faith is restored. Actually, we see a picture of faithlessness. And in the end, what do we walk away with but the stunned realization, actually, it's not so much about the gift as much as it's about the giver. I mean, I mean think about this. He just healed you for 38 years. Great, present time. I'm going to run and go on and, you know, take my present into the room and play with it. Hang on, do you realize what you've been given? 
Who has given this to you? A true sign always, a true sign from God, always reveals us something about Jesus, first of all. And then second of all, it'll tell us something about God. But third, I think Jesus also has a specific agenda. And I think he's trying to redefine the third and last heading, Sabbath or rest. He's redefining this thing called Sabbath. And it's really interesting. It's, it's funny. I think um, when Jesus heals this guy, what is the first thing that he tells him? Does anybody know? Well, let's look it up. The first thing that he tells this guy right after he heals him. In fact, while he heals him, in verse 8, he says, Get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. Get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. And what was the thing that made the Jews so uncomfortable with this was that they saw him picking up his pallet and walking. There's a word there, pick up, or in some of your translations, take up. There's something very, very intentional about that. You wonder, why does Jesus say, pick up your pallet and walk? Is that part of the dance? But that I think what he's doing is he's, I don't want to use the word attack. I think that's too strong. But he's addressing this thing called Sabbath. For a good Jew, going all the way back into the Old Testament, they knew you're not supposed to carry any load on the seventh day. On the seventh day, you are not supposed to carry anything in and out or through the city gates because you were working. What's so bad about working on seven days? What's so bad about putting in some extra time, about putting in some extra hours? Here's what's so bad. For them, they believed that they lost everything. They lost their country. They believed that they were basically a lost people because of breaking the Sabbath. They disappointed God. They broke the laws. One of the most important laws they broke was the Sabbath. Some Jews, some rabbis even taught, they even taught that our deliverance, the Messiah will come back if all of us, if all of us practice just one day, if every good Jew practiced one perfect day of Sabbath, Messiah would come back and deliver us from the Romans and from our misery and give us back the Holy Land etc., etc. That's what some rabbis taught. It's in the additional writings outside of the Torah. They actually believed, some of them did, if you practiced one perfect Sabbath, if all of us, the nation of Jews, practiced one perfect Sabbath, God would come back and would, would, would restore us to our former glory. So, it's Sunday, or for them, Saturday. Stop, everybody. Shh. Don't work. Don't, don't, don't lift. Don't carry. Don't do anything. You, I see you over there. Aaron, let me check your boot. Look at Aaron's boot. There's a pebble in your shoe. You're working. Take the pebble out and find him. Why? And I, I'm not kidding here. Why? Because that pebble, even if it's an ounce, how many steps do you take in a day? Let's say you've taken 5,000 steps. 5,000 times one ounce is what? What's the metric conversion there? I don't know. You're working, Aaron. You're ruining it for the whole nation. 
We want, we want Messiah to come back. And here you are working, carrying that little pebble in your shoe. You're, you're carrying is the word. You're lifting. It's so interesting that Jesus deliberately tells this guy, I've healed you, lift. Lift. I've lived in parts of the country where liquor stores were <laughs> shut down on Sundays, where supermarkets, everything was shut down on a Sunday. And Jesus walks into town and he says, work. What, 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 is, what, is, what does that say? Does that mean we have a workaholic God? Does it mean that we have a God who is not interested, in, that maybe he's Asian, maybe he's Korean, right? You go to school six days and then on the seventh day you study. What, 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 what is he doing? I mean, Jesus, you're trying to burn us into the ground. You're trying to, you're trying to redefine Sabbath here. Um, what does he say uh, in, verse, in verse 17? My father is working until now. You could literally translate that. My father is toiling. Sounds like, sounds like my mom. <laughs> my father is toiling, and I myself am toiling. Therefore, you too should toil. I think what Jesus is doing is he's redefining Sabbath. I think what he's doing is he's taking this idea of rest and he's saying everything that you're looking for in that seventh day, no, it's not about, it's not about, it's not about not working as much as it's about trusting. He takes this institution of Sabbath. For the Jews, you know, understand, the Jews were not, the, for the Jews it wasn't this, you know, come on, you know, it's this holistic thing, you know, we want you to be rested. You, it's if, you know, if you don't, if you work more than 40 hours a week, don't you know you're going to have depression and you're going to have like, you know, um, low testosterone and, you know, low T levels and all these things. It's not good. For, no, for them it wasn't so much that. It was an institution. It was a religious institution. And Jesus takes that religious institution and says, look, you're, you're chasing this thing called rest. Rest, now don't get me wrong, okay? I'm not telling you that you should work to the, you know, I'm not telling, that's another sermon. I, I will preach another sermon because I really believe very much on the rhythms of Sabbath and rest and true rest. I just think Jesus is redefining it. And he's saying, you want rest? You're looking at rest. You want Sabbath? I was there when Dad and I created it. I was there on the first seventh day. You want to know what rest is? Follow me. Follow me. And you'll know rest even as you work. Even as you labor. In the harvest, you will know the joy and the true peace of rest. Come with me. Come with me to this place. That's why when you become a Christian, you know, here at Woven, I think we're really learning. We're, we're becoming a church about discipleship. It's not just about becoming a Christian and doing, 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 doing. Because you do enough, you will burn out. Believe me, I'm not just a client. I'm the president. You will burn out. I know what depression tastes like. I know what manic work is like. In fact, I'm kind of there right now. 
and I think it's a timely message, especially as for some of us, spring break starts tomorrow. You know, they told me church planting would be a lot of work. This is my second church plant, and I remember, yeah, it's a lot of work. Um, but to truly understand the discipleship message, it's not doing, 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 doing. It's being, being, being. It's knowing who you are. That rest, yes, you need to have rhythms of rest. You need to stop. You need to put the day, you need to put the day down. It's 5 o'clock. Let it go. Shut the office door. Stop looking at your phone. You're in bed. When you wake up, Brush your teeth. Don't check your email. I, you know, I, and I'll tell you, I'll lead with my weakness. Um, I started doing that just to get me going at 7 a.m. in the morning for the last three months. Right now, once 7 o'clock rolls around, I, I feel jittery. I feel the adrenaline. It's not good. So I've stopped this week. I've literally stopped doing that. I relapsed this morning. I figured it's Sunday, I'm going to work, right? So I checked my email, and I didn't like how it made me feel. My heart was beating faster. It's not good. It's not good. Um, Lost my train of thought. I guess what I'm trying to say is, yes, observe the rhythms of Sabbath, but in the end, be with Jesus. Learn what true rest is. Learn to rest from your striving. Learn to rest from impressing dad learn to rest from the constant rat race of getting your name out there I heard this great Ann Landers quote when you're 20 you're worried about what people think about you when you're 40 you realize you don't care what people think about you when you're 60 you realize no one was thinking about you anyway. <laughs> so relax. Who are, you trying to pr- who are you trying to impress? There's this play by um, the playwright Arthur Miller called After the Fall, where there's this powerful dialogue. I, I don't have the, the words, but it's, it's, it's like this, where he talks about we live our lives like we're in a court of law. And we don't know who the judge is. We don't know who's sitting behind there. But we're constantly trying to defend ourselves, prove ourselves, somehow come through this court of law like we've made it. And we live our lives with this neurosis. And the sad reality is when we look up, there's no one behind the bench. But we live in this endless litigation of our lives. Why do I breathe? Why do I function? Why do I do this? Why do I wake up every morning? I'm trying to legitimize the reason I live. And that is a case for sickness. What Jesus does with the Sabbath is he says, come aside, learn who you are as I show you who I am. Let me show you who I am. Stop thinking about yourself for a moment. And as you see who I am, you're going to discover who you are. And you'll be at rest. But I need to figure it out. I'm on this journey. I'm working. I'll close with this last story about resting, trusting. Jesus redefines rest. This is a posture of rest. 
There was once a man named Charles Blondin. You might have heard of him. He was the guy that walked across Niagara Falls on a tightrope. I'm sure there's copycats and there's others who've done it, but he was the original gangster. The guy with a long pole, if you've seen the old black and white photos, walking across a tightrope over Niagara Falls. And when he was done, he said, huh, that was easy. Let me see if I can do this with um, a sack of flour on my back. Let me see if I can do this pushing a wheelbarrow. So it started getting crazy. Like he started like balancing um, furniture and stuff and like crossing the Niagara Falls on a tightrope with all this stuff. There was one point where he actually got into the middle of Niagara Falls. He took out a pan. Lord, help me. I don't know how he did this. And he cooked an omelet and he ate it. (gasps) Everybody on the sidelines like, oh my gosh. And he cooks this omelet, he eats it, and then he just walks off to the other side like it was nothing. So by the end of the summer, he's doing this all season long, come back next Sunday, watch Charles Blondin cross. Um, Maybe the numbers were dropping a little bit or something. So he says, let's spice up the act. Does anybody... Does anybody want to try crossing with me on my back? And, yeah, yeah, sure, I'll try it. No, 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 no. <laughs> How about you? Uh, right? All right. Nobody has the guts. So he drags his manager. He drags his manager, Harry Colcord. <laughs> he says, look, Harry, if you want to get admission tickets, if you want to, if you want, you know, if you want to keep the crowds coming, you've got to do this. So reluctantly, Harry Colcord agrees. Climbs onto Blondin's back. You can Wikipedia this. There's a picture of this and everything. He climbs onto his back, and Charles Blondin starts walking across with this man on his back. He says, how you doing back there, Harry? Um, okay. You know, and he's walking. He's crossing, and they're in the middle of the falls, and they hear the roar of the waves, Of course, Blondin is chill. He's at rest. Harry hears the noise, looks around at the surroundings, sees his life, and he begins to panic. So what does he do? What does he do? Blondin knows how to move with the wind and the waves. He knows how to move with life. He he, he knows how to roll with the punches. He knows that if you sway like this, just wait. It'll come back. But as he sways like this, what does Harry do? He tries to, he tries to counterbalance. He tries to, he, tries to, he tries to survive. It's that survival mechanism that so often gets us into trouble. And in this counterbalancing movement, it's like a pendulum. It's so violent. It goes this way, then this way. And, you know, it's like playing Wii Boxing, right? You know, this way, this way. The further you sway to the side... Finally, Charles says, Harry, stop! Listen, Harry, and I want you to hear the metaphor here for the life of rest in Jesus. Insert your name. Harry, Jenny, Paul, Frank. You are no longer Harry. You are no longer yourself. You are Blondin. (laughs) That's what he says. You are Blondin until I clear this place. Be a part of me. Mind, body, soul. If I sway, sway with me. 
If I sway this way, go this way with me. Do not attempt to balance yourself. In fact, stop. Because if you do, we both shall go down to our death. Do you hear those words? Does it speak to you this morning? It speaks to me. I live my life all the time trying to counterbalance. There's a problem here. Let me counterbalance it by heavy activity. on this. See if I can fix things by this way, this way. When actually he says, roll with the punches. Chillax. You're on my back. I got this really long stick, you know. We'll be okay. Let it go. If you need to put everything down on the seventh day in order to help you to come to that realization, then do it. Then do it. I need to do that. I need to get away because sometimes I can't understand this essential message of rest in Jesus. Jesus is rest. Even God becomes addictive work and behavior for me because it's, it's too much in my own mind. And maybe we need to take that phone and chuck it out the window or just shut it off for the night and have a day where you're phone free or media free or whatever. Get back out there, get into nature or pray or meditate or do what you need. But get back to that heart message. I've got it. I've got it. So, Jesus redefines himself. He gives us a sign and he says, this is who I am. Then he redefines God. Everything that we know about the cosmos, about the universe, it's like opening up sober eyes and realizing all is not as you think. The sky hasn't fallen. There is a God and he is not dead. On top of that, you can call him dad. It's just a sidetrack really quick. That's the funny thing is, when, that's the funny thing. When I don't check my email, I think, I think the sky has fallen. I think the universe is completely laid waste. I check my email, it's not that bad. It's never that bad. We always, we always fear the worst. But in the end, God is still in heaven. The earth still stands for tomorrow. You're still employed. Your children are okay. You're okay. You're in a good place. And that is the third and last thing, rest. He redefines Sabbath. He redefines Sabbath. So, I tell you what, uh, next Sunday we go into the fourth sign. We go into fourth sign and I think it's going to be a fun one. Um, it's interesting. This is getting a little better for me getting a little bit more um, but it is spring break week for a lot of us it is a timely message I think so there's a little little what is that a poem or a little thing on the bottom of your notes I'm going to recite it once and then I'm going to allow you to just read it through on your own and at that time the worship team is going to come up and I'm going to allow you to have a chance to respond This is called Renew by Melody Beetle. Rest when you're tired. 
Take a drink of cold water when you're thirsty. Call a friend when you're lonely. Ask God to help when you feel overwhelmed. You know, many of us have learned how to deprive and neglect ourselves. Many of us have learned to push ourselves hard when the problem is that we've already pushed too hard. Many of us are afraid the work won't get done if we rest when we're tired. The work will get done. It will be done better than work that emerges from tiredness of soul and spirit. Nurtured, nourished people who love themselves and care for themselves are the delight of the universe. You are well-timed, efficient, and divinely led.